Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple and certain truth about death. Alisa Bonaparte, as Napoleon's sister, lay dying. Someone in the room observed that nothing was as certain as death except taxes, added Elisa, thus making her last words among the most widely quoted in history. No one cheats death. Everybody dies. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. There's no getting around it. The death rate will always remain at one apiece. And today, Pastor Xavier turns to the prophet Isaiah for some insights on death, however approaching it not as a grim reaper, but as a messenger of the hope of eternal life for the believer in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. The message is entitled, There is Life After Death. Death is something that man is always attempting to cheat. Throughout the centuries, scientists, men of vision, men of philosophy, agnostics, whatever they may be, they have declared their certainty about death out of their ignorance. And the way we know that is we can take their words and compare them to the scriptures. The scriptures are the ultimate authority about life and Death, how you live life, and what happens after death. Certainly our day and age is no exception as we have the gurus of today, the movie stars, who proclaim so much knowledge about after, life after death, declare that Christian science is the way. You guys remember Timothy Leary in the 60s. He thought the greatest way to die was to die on LSD. So he had... People give him LSD before he passed on. What a bummer. To be so certain about something. Have you ever been so certain about something? And then you go, oh, shoot. Now, if you're going to err in life, err anywhere, anywhere, but not in death. Because it's for all eternity. The prophet Isaiah gives to us a promise of the resurrection from the dead and the, the midst of the kingdom song here that we want to examine in a threefold progression. Let me read verse 19. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise, awake, and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now, the verse seems insignificant and really just kind of just flow through it. And you can, and, and we can acknowledge it. just we're going to live again and all that. But again, here Isaiah, in the midst of this kingdom proclamation, he just jarts this thing out there. As often he does in the scripture without making a distinction or a proclamation. Okay, now I'm going to speak about the future. But, you know, he, he's dealing with these issues and he just proclaims it a great promise. Now... In this verse, we want to look at it in its threefold progression so we can see it within the whole of Scripture. First of all, we want to see the proclamation of the resurrection here of the prophet. Then secondly, the interpretation of the resurrection. And then thirdly, the application of the resurrection. And as we move through this, I hope that you understand what happens when you die, that you understand death. In life after death. Let's begin here with the proclamation of the resurrection. 
Notice, first of all, the particular context of the chapter is the reign of Jesus during the millennial kingdom. This is very important. Context is very, very important. What you say it, when you say it. If I say, you know, I, I sure love you, honey. The context is very important. Am I saying it to my wife or my secretary? You, you must put it in its perspective. He's speaking about the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign and rule of Christ. The prophet Isaiah has just declared judgment to the various Gentile nations from chapter 13 to 23. We saw that section. He, he, he brings judgment on Babylon, um, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, uh, the desert of the sea, Babylon, Edom, Arabia, even Jerusalem and Tyre. Why? Because Jerusalem was living like the Gentile nations. So he deals very specific judgment on individuals. Now, as he comes to chapter 24 to 27, this section is a unit and is like a final crescendo to the judgment of the whole world. So he dealt with individuals, and now he gives the judgment of the entire world. The key phrase in this section is, in that day. The phrase in that day is used in the book, as we've seen, for the day of the Lord in Isaiah 2. And that includes the tribulation, great tribulation, but then it's also used for the thousand-year reign. So the context is important. Is the context describing the great tribulation, that section, or is it describing the millennial kingdom? So that's an important question. The type of literature is called apocalyptic, much like the book of Revelation, which describes the battle between the forces of God and of Satan in its truest form. We have that as John gives us the revelation. Now, the keynote of the judgment of the entire world, as we see through these four chapters, will result in the righteous breaking out in singing and rejoicing. Because everybody's looking for that day. We pray it. Your kingdom come. And when that day comes, you're looking for your party, your birthday party. or your When it comes, man, you are excited. You celebrate it. So that's another keynote. In fact, these four chapters give us songs during that thousand-year reign, the rejoicing of it. Look at now verse 9 of chapter 25. He says, And it will be said in that day, Behold, there is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. And this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's talking about that day. It's finally come, the thousand-year reign. The righteous remnant have long been waiting to see the judgments of God on the earth and to bring righteousness. You ever get tired of the injustices that go on here? I do. I say, oh, Lord, be so good when you're back. Nobody will get away with anything. Look at chapter 26, verse 9. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Not until then. Until then there's going to be injustice, unrighteousness, wickedness. People are going to get away with things. But they won't get away with them there or at the judgment. That's important. The righteous remnant will be protected by the Lord. And in the context, he's talking about Israel primarily. Look at chapter 27, verse 2 and 3. In that day, sing to her, who's her? A vineyard of red wine, 
I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Who's the vineyard? Chapter 5, Israel. That's who he's talking about. The kingdom age is primarily for Israel to inherit all the land, all the promises that God gave to Abraham. Now the judgment was coming to Jerusalem also. Not only the Gentiles, nations we showed. In Assyria, took the northern kingdom in captivity in 722 because of idolatry. Assyria never came into Jerusalem. Remember, God even sent out one angel, wiped out 185,000 in one night. Okay? But then Jerusalem would be taken by Babylon to three sieges. Nebuchadnezzar took him into captivity. Seventy years. In fact, we have seen clearly up to this point that Assyria as well as Babylon were called the rod of God. He used those nations to chasten his own people. And then after he got using them, he turned around and judged them because they always went further than he wanted to and for their evil. And he made that very clear in chapter 10, verse 10 and 12, Assyria and Babylon in chapter 13, 1 and 2 and 17, and many other places. So God can do that, and from our perspective, we say, well, that's not fair. Well, wait a minute. God is holy, and he's sovereign. And he can't violate his holiness when he exercises sovereignty. So even though I may not understand it, it may seem unfair to me. I know if God acts, it's not unfair. It's not unjust. He's the epitome of holiness. He cannot make a mistake. The prophet Isaiah is telling the people here who he's proclaiming the word to is that there would be many to die, both righteous and wicked. And as we look at history, we know that Christians throughout history have died in the midst of unrighteousness. The rain falls from the just and the unjust. That's not the scripture saying. Because I'm a Christian, it doesn't exempt me from tragedy, from difficulty or death on the physical level. And so I have to be careful that I don't get bitter against God. I don't accuse God or that I don't blame God for the things that are just natural through the process of the fall and sin and this evil world that goes on. Because if I'm a child of God, I'm in his hands and nothing can happen to me unless he allows it. And he will always give me a way of escape. He's a God of mercy. He's a faithful creator in my sufferings, the scriptures tell me. Very important. Now notice, secondly, the promise of resurrection was to the obedient. He's talking to the people of God, those who he's calling to faith. The prophet declares, your dead shall live. The prophet is speaking to the people of God. The prophet is attempting to exhort and comfort the righteous men and women in the midst of a difficult crisis. You and, you and I do that to our children. Or if you have children, you still do it. He's not, not, don't be scared. You understand? Don't, I'm here. You, you, I'm here, okay? You repeat. You, you just kind of, and this is what the prophet's doing. The message is one of God's revelation. That was to be embraced by faith in the midst of a type of the day of the Lord, a very difficult crisis time. The personal benefit, notice, would be in the future by the word shall. It's repeated. Shall live, shall rise, shall cast out. No time is given. No duration between dead and being raised is pointed out. It is amazing that people do not know how to handle death so often because they're so ignorant about death and life after death. Religious people are the most evident in this. When I was, I was brought up as a Catholic in Mexico City and, and, and the tearing at the box and all kinds of different things that go on declares the quality of faith a person has. Nothing wrong with crying, nothing wrong with missing. 
someone, a loved one. But I do not tear at the box, and I do not act like if I don't know what's happening. And I know where my loved ones are. If they died in Christ, they're with him. And so much of the, of the lamentation out of, out of frustration or anxiety or ignorance demonstrates the quality of their belief. It shows no hope. Elisa Bonaparte, as Napoleon's sister, lay dying. Someone in the room observed that nothing was as certain as death except taxes, added Elisa, thus making her last words among the most widely quoted in history. All die. The purpose of God for man from the beginning was that man would live eternally with him in fellowship. But God told Adam, the day that you eat, you shall surely die in Genesis 2.17. God was talking, first of all, about spiritual death. Then secondly, about physical death. Spiritual death is always first. Adam partook. And all of a sudden he says, we're naked. God says, who told you you're naked? Spiritual death. Took place instantly. And I'm sure that Adam said, well, I'm, I'm not dead. But he didn't know what death was about. Because no one had died up to that point. The first one to die was a little innocent animal. In Genesis 3, 20, 21, for the covering of his sin. Then the first man to die was his own son. And from that point on, men died. In fact, Genesis 5 records for us, and this man lived 100 and some years, and he died, and he died, and he died. And Methuselah lived the longest, 969 years, and he died. Chapter 5 is a record to all of man in his history that no one cheats death. Everybody dies. If we do not believe in God, explain to me death. Where did it come from? It's a consequence. What was the cause? The one act of sin affected the entire human race and death passed on all men, Paul said in Romans 5.12. People say, well, you know, Adam acted like the federal head and, and that's not fair that he acted on my behalf and I'm paying for his sin. Well, listen, it's okay. Let me give you some good news. You no longer have to blame Adam or depend upon him because the last Adam has already come and died on the tree of life, the cross. Now you get to choose if you want to continue to be held responsible for the sin of Adam or if you want to be cleared of the sin of Adam by having faith and trust in the last Adam. So you know, you're not a victim. You choose where you're going to end up eternity. It's a choice now. You can't blame God. You can't blame Adam or anyone else. You see, Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed unto every man to die once, and after that, the judgment. No one escapes it. The non-believer is born once, physically, by his parents. He dies twice. Physically, spiritually. Temporary, eternal. The believer is born twice. He's born through his parents once, physically, and he's born again of the Spirit of God through his word, spiritually. He dies once physically, unless he's the generation of the rapture. <laughs> okay? The second death is called the eternal death, resulting in eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, as we'll see as we move along in Revelation 20, verse 14. Okay? So there is life after death. You will live eternally, either with God or apart from God. There's no such thing as soul sleep. You don't just go there and take a nap. 
You don't zoom around somewhere in the ozone. You don't, you don't just cease to exist. You're either with God or you're separated from God, okay? This is the proclamation of the resurrection. Very clear through the scriptures. Now, the Old Testament is not that clear as we'll see, but they knew that men died and they would be risen again, okay? No great details, but it was known. Now, let's secondly look at the interpretation of the resurrection here. First of all, the particular wording is important. The reading in the English translation is not as clear as it is in the Hebrew. The translators in their translating of the scriptures often attempted to give the sense as well as to communicate the literalness. It's very difficult. If you, if you know two languages, you know what I'm talking about. You cannot translate word for word, literal from one language to another. You lose the sense. You can translate words literally, but when you use them within a sentence, they're chain, they're little links that come together, and, and the focus is not every individual word in itself, but how they connect together. So you often have to sacrifice the, the literal word-for-word -word translation to communicate the sense or the idea, okay? And it's always a difficult process. Now, in the King James and the New King James Version, you always know when they wanted to help you to communicate that by the italicized words. The text in the Hebrew has nothing to justify the word together here. But it was inserted by the translators. But what I like about the King James and the Old King James is that they are honest enough to tell you that. Other translations, they make changes, they never tell you nothing. Okay? The translator here did. The literal wording is as follows. Your dead will live. Their bodies will arise. The repetition is a double assurance to those listening. In fact, the Septuagint version, which is identified by a capital L, capital X, capital X, Roman numerals for 50 and two tens, 70, was the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures after the Babylonian captivity because they lost their language. That translation adds those in the tomb, which identifies what is implied. It's not in the original, but again, they're inserting to communicate the clear and more specific communication, okay? Now, secondly, notice the point of contrast, now that we looked at the words. Look at the point of contrast. First of all, the contrast between the dead who know not God and will not live with him. Look at verse 14 of chapter 26, because this is the context he's speaking in. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not arise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Now, there is no contradiction here but a distinction of the two. This is where it's important. When you read something, you read it in its context. That's where the non-believers say, well, right here in 19 says you're going to rise. Now in 14, they're not going to live. It's a contradiction. The Bible is just a joke. He's making a distinction between those who have died in faith in God and those who have not. Both will live after death eternally. One with God, the other one apart from God. The benefit of Isaiah's proclamation is for the person who has lived in faith and dies physically knowing God. He, she will live again. 
He, she who dies in their sin apart from God will not live again with God. So you must read it in its context. There are contrasts that are going on here. Now, the second contrast is that they're both literal and figurative. And people always play games here, okay? The words dead, live, dead body, shall arise, dwell in dust, earth shall cast the dead, are all literal. They're all literal words. The ones being described are those who literally have died and were going to die in the future. They're literal words. The ones being described are those who literally lived on, having died, and would live with God. My father died December the 8th, 1994. He lives on. He knew Christ. He died physically, but he's still living. He's living more than he ever lived here. (laughs) The casting out of their bodies speaks of a literal physical raising, not a spiritual one. He's talking literal here. Okay? But he's mixing literal with figurative. Let me give you an example. Guys say, look, man, look at the color of that tree. It looks like a, like a, a ball of cotton candy. Now, how many of you would say, Xavier said that tree's a cotton candy. I'm using a literal use of the word for the tree like cotton candy. It's a simile. It appears to me that's what I conceive and perceive it to be like, not that I believe that it is. So I use literal language and to describe that tree and its beauty, I use figurative language. That's what the prophet's doing here. The word awake, sing, like the dew of herbs, these are figurative. The awakening is a metaphor opposite of sleep, which is used to describe the believer's state at death. The believer sleeps. It's used in the Old and the New Testament. Never is the word sleep used for the non-believer. It's always used for the believer. Now, it doesn't mean that you're, you're sleeping. It doesn't mean that. People teach slow sleep. No such thing. It just means that you've passed from this life to the next. Hassles are over. When someone's sleeping, they're resting. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're out. Okay? You're alive. Therefore, the word awake represents what? Resurrection. Symbolic. Just like sleep means death. Raising means resurrection. It's figurative. Now, the singing speaks of rejoicing and praising in celebration of the event in the millennial kingdom. Even as it is evident of this chapter that's speaking about the song of rejoicing and salvation in the kingdom age. In these four chapters, we have some songs that are given to us, rejoicing. You remember being young and looking forward to your birthday party? And then when it's there, you rejoice, you celebrate it. Same thing here. Now, the dew of herbs represents God's power to raise the dead. Even as dew upon a plant, so it's nourished water. Even as the sunlight, the plant being sensitive to it, to receive the fullness of life. Who is the dew representative of? God, God's the one that's going to do this. So like dew on a plant, God will do the work. Like sun on a plant, God will do the work. 
He's the one that imparts life. Jesus said, I give life to all those who are dead, right? I'm the resurrection of life. Pastor Xavier Reese with a divine perspective of eternity from chapter 26 of the book of Isaiah. Today's message is available for only $4. Just ask for the message, There is Life After Death. We can send you a copy on CD. And by the way, this will also include what Pastor Xavier has planned for next time as well. So once again, the title to ask for is, There is Life After Death, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing, Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please be sure and include the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This helps us monitor the impact of this outreach in your area. The simple truth is, eternity is a certainty. Where you spend it is entirely up to you. Find out why when you join Pastor Xavier Reese for the next edition of Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 